Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 2. The text is also printed in the bulletin. Psalm 2, we're making our way into a series on the Psalms. Uh, We're going to spend enough time in the Psalms to get comfortable with them and to learn together better how to read them and uh, use them in our own prayers and uh, worship. And as we make our way into the Psalms, uh, Psalms 1 and 2, we looked at one last week, uh, 1 and 2 this week, um, together they can be understood as introducing the Psalms to us, sort of like entry gates through which you pass on your way into the rest of the book of the Psalms. So at the very beginning of Psalm 1, and they they really have been taken this way together, sort of as uh, together introducing the Psalms for a long time. Uh, At the very beginning of Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm, again, we looked at that last week, you have the words, blessed is the man, which the psalm goes on to describe then as the man whose life resonates in relationship to the God who speaks, uh, who makes God's word his own word. Blessed is that man. And then at the very end of Psalm 2, which is a royal psalm, you have the words, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So sort of the book ends there. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, speaking of those who um, embrace the Christ King, the Lord's anointed. The, the, the word anointed that shows up in Psalm 2, it means, uh, it's actually literally Hebrew, Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christ. So um, that's, that's what we're talking about this morning. In Luke 24, when Jesus said that all the scriptures were about him, he explicitly mentioned the Psalms. All the Psalms are about Jesus. And um, so as we enter in through these sort of entry gates into the Psalms, we need to hear how Christ is the song of these Psalms uh, so that we can learn how he can become our song in all the Psalms as we make our way into that series. So let me pray, then we'll read Psalm 2. <clears throat> Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit's help now as we consider your word. It's a word that is... Um, in some places, 3,000 years old or more, and yet it speaks to us when, when you speak to us, when your word is opened to us by your Holy Spirit. So please illuminate our minds and open up our hearts so that we can uh, hear you as you speak to us in this psalm this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at first reading, uh, 
people in our situation, this psalm might seem unhelpful or irrelevant to you. We don't have a king. We don't call our leader a king. That seems remote, at least over in Great Britain, if not just in history. Um, It might seem irrelevant because it was written a long time ago in a land far, far away about governments, nations that mostly have faded away from the earth and even from the earth's memory. Um, But the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel, think about the, the time of David, the time of his son Solomon, and the kingdom after that. The, the nation of Israel had subdued other nations in its territories, small territories, and small nations. Uh, but uh, uh, during the time of Solomon especially, kings paid tribute to the king of Israel. But these subjugated nations and their rulers, they chafed, and there were these uprisings, and there were rebellions against the authority of the king of Israel. It might sound like this psalm is basically just saying to resistance fighters in the ancient Near East, yeah, rebellion is a bad idea. Don't even think about it. Um, but, but it has a place in the scriptures. And in its place in the scriptures and in the flow of the history of God's dealings with, with his people, it really is saying much more than that, much more than just, yeah, you ancient Near Eastern kings um, should just submit yourselves to Solomon and be happy about it. In the ancient world, Israel was nothing special, really. That's important to understand uh, throughout the Old Testament. Israel is nothing special, not in and of of themselves. Even God, who had taken them as a people for himself, even God said so. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. You're set apart for me. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, precious to the Lord, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. So Israel's nothing special in and of themselves. God has chosen them out of all the peoples of the earth, but not because of anything in them, but because the Lord loves them. The thing that distinguished Israel from all the other nations, from all the other peoples, was the love of God that was freely set upon them and the the promises of God that were freely made to them, explicitly to their fathers, the fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the the fathers that spring to mind. God made promises to them. And that was what made this people a special people a chosen, treasured possession for God, because God loved and made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before God uh, made promises to Abram, there was no Israel. There was no Israel. There was no special people. In fact, there were only the nations, all the people you could choose from. There were just Gentiles, right? Just the nations, And God called Abram out from among them. And he said in chapter 12 of Genesis, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. So come out from among all the other nations and the peoples. You were one of them. But go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from all the nations, God in his grace created this one new nation. 
He had taken them out of all the other nations, but he created them by his grace, this new nation, Israel, for the express purpose of blessing all of the rest of the nations. That's what he says when he makes these promises to Abram uh, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and then to uh, his son and grandson after him. It was always his plan to take this one people group, it's just like all the other people groups, take them and make them his special possession so that, um, so that by blessing them, it would be a blessing to all the nations, all the regular folks out there. Always his plan, which included when Israel got land and got a king and became like the other nations in having a king. God made promises to David. He wasn't the first king of Israel, but he was the, he was the good one, right? Um, God made promises to David about David's son who would rule after him in 2 Samuel 7. Super important promise that God makes to David. Um, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14, God says to David, I will establish the throne of your son's kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So kings have always claimed that kind of relationship with God. They've always claimed that kind of divinity for themselves. They want, want to be known as the sons of the gods. We have that... Um, uh, the biggest picture of it is the Roman emperor who on all of his coins had uh, that he's the son of God. Uh, but, but lots of kings and lots of tyrants, even today, still claim that kind of divinity, that kind of relationship with God. But this, what God was saying to David uh, about being to him a father and he's going to be to me a son, that would be a bigger deal than all the grandiose claims of all the tyrants and, and rulers and emperors about divinity for themselves. The son of David, the king of Israel, would be the son of God himself, would be the, the son of Yahweh, son of this God, this one true God who's revealed himself through the scriptures and to his people Israel. And that surely meant good news, not just for his people, but for all the nations, because that's always been the plan. Good news, not just for Israel, whom he selected out of the nations, but to bless all the nations by blessing Israel. Right? Since the very existence of Israel was meant to be a blessing to all nations. So giving a good king to Israel, whom God calls his son, is meant for Israel's good and also for the blessing of all nations. So the opening question of Psalm 2, then, the opening question of Psalm 2 is asking more than just, nations, what do you think to accomplish with a rebellion against God and the king of Israel? Don't you know that God is too strong, his king is too strong for you to beat? It's kind of funny when you look at them historically how, how kind of puny they were. But, so it's, it's about more than that. In fact, uh, the opening question of Psalm 2 is asking whether, whether they actually know what's in their own best interests. Because here God's plan with Israel and with Israel's king all along has been to, uh, to be a blessing to all nations. So do you know what's in your best interest? Why? Why would you rage against God? It's, it's asked with astonishment. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ, saying, 
Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Everything God was doing with the nation of Israel and with the Davidic kingship was meant to be for the good of all the nations. So why on earth would they get themselves in an uproar about it? Because as God says in Hosea, in his prophecy, his are cords of kindness and bands of love. And it's ridiculous that anyone would want to throw off those cords and those bands and those shackles, the shackles of his authority. It's ridiculous that anyone would want, if they knew what was in their best interest, to throw off God's shackles from them. And so, um, so in verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Because what they're doing is vain, and it, it's actually comedic. It's actually humorous. It's actually funny, the vanity. Because our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3 says. And then Isaiah, his prophecy, chapter 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So yeah, it's kind of funny that they're raging against God and think, they, they hope to accomplish the overthrow of God and his king. Uh, it just reminds me of the, the movie Avengers Age of Ultron, <clears throat> where Thor and the Earth Avengers, you know, Thor's an Asgardian. He's great. He's mighty. He's like a god. And all these others are, um, they're just human beings. Maybe they're advanced kind of uh, human beings, but, uh, but Thor, he's the god of thunder, and he's talking to these other Avengers, and he starts laughing he just says, you people are so petty and tiny. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, yeah, God could look at us and say, you people are so petty and tiny. There is some sense in which he ha- God has a sense of humor. Humor comes from God. God laughs. Even though he isn't like us, he doesn't have lungs and a windpipe and a mouth, and it's not making an audible noise when he laughs. But it's something that takes place in him. He laughs And not just at their feeble attempts at rebellion. He doesn't just say, you're so puny and tiny. What could you hope to accomplish? He laughs at the deeper humor that in his complete sovereignty, because he does whatever he wants, even their feeble attempts at rebellion will ultimately serve his purposes. That's why it's vain for anyone to try to rise up against God in rebellion. Um, and it's funny, because in his sovereignty, even, even our attempts at rebellion will just ultimately serve his own purposes and accomplish his own will. More on that in a few minutes. But suffice it to say, the nations and the kings of the earth are far from being able to deliver themselves from God's sovereign authority. I don't care who you are, I don't care what kingdom you're from, what, what you rule over You are far from being able to deliver yourself from God's authority. God will do what he will do, and no one can stop it. And that can be terrifying. That can be terrifying to us. It actually says, the next verse says, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, this is pretty emphatic, as for me, (laughs) you guys can go ahead and have all your plans and your plots, and I'll just laugh, but as for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. So, uh, strange as it seems when God reveals his anger, it's good news. 
It's good news for him to set his king on Zion, his holy hill. It's good news. But at the same time, it's a revelation of his anger to to all the nations. It is, of course, good news and blessing for all the nations so that God has fulfilled his promises to Israel to make the nation Israel and to bless them. And, And God has fulfilled his promises to crown the Davidic king. He's done these things, and it's good news for the whole world that he's done these things. God has done what he has done. No one was able to stop it in his sovereignty, unassailably. He placed his man with authority over his people. And there's wrath involved. There's fury involved when God makes that known, when he, makes, when he reveals his king. And there's terror on the part of the nations who are his enemies. But it should be a tremendous reassurance. It should be a tremendous encouragement to the people who are looking to him, looking to the sovereign God and looking to his anointed king for blessing. If you're actually looking to him, all of this is tremendously reassuring, comforting, and encouraging. And now the king speaks in verse 7, the, the human king. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh, the Lord, God, said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's, the, that's what gets basically said at the coronation of this new king. So it's a reference to God's promise, again from 2 Samuel 7, that David's son would be God's son. And Yahweh said, the Lord said, ask of me, said this to the king, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the Davidic king would ask for the world and God would give it to him. Now, it might seem that this imagery here in verse 9 is uh, primarily about destruction. I think maybe there's something about destruction in there, but verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Uh, But I doubt that that's the primary meaning. meaning. One commentary that I read uh, provided a really plausible alternative. It's the imagery of a potter working with clay, working with vessels made from clay, and it's a common one throughout the scriptures to speak of God's creative power to liken him to a potter who's working with clay, shaping it. So if you've created a clay pot or maybe a clay coffee cup for your mom and dad, um, and it's dried and it's hardened in its shape, but there's something wrong with it, it's cracked or it's misshapen, Well, if you haven't fired it in the oven yet and set it permanently forever, then you you break it and you start over. You break it up and you get it wet and you work it back into clay and you start a new creation. So God says to his Davidic son, King, I'll give you the world. Ask ask of me and I'll give it to you. You make it new. You, You break it apart. You reform it, you shape it, it'll be a violent process, that's for sure. Jesus says the kingdom of God, it's it's a violent process, but it's not ultimately one of destruction because he's given him these kingdoms and the ends of the earth to belong to you forever, to be your possession, to be your heritage. That's not not something you just break and do do away with it. Now, therefore, O kings, 
be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So the psalmist here is extending the opportunity to respond, to respond well. This isn't just a threat. He isn't just issuing threats and ultimatums. He isn't saying, it's over for you. You better, you better get ready. He's graciously inviting a wise response. He's extending the possibility, the potential, for a wise response to a serious warning. It is not up for debate. This is not a democracy. God has set his king up over Israel. This Davidic king is precious to God. God calls this king his own son. It is meant to be received as good news for you and all nations. Resistance is futile. It's altogether ridiculous, really. So now's your chance to drop your resistance. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here at the very end, you have the guarantee that this whole psalm isn't just about death threats breathed out by an angry God. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, in his king, in his anointed. So Derek Kidner said, what... What fear and pride interpret as bondage, when people in, in their fear and in their pride and their rebellion against God, they look at his authority, we interpret it as bondage, something that we've got to suffer, we're, we're enslaved to. But it is, in fact, security and bliss. Kinder says, there is no refuge from him, only in him. But that's offered. That refuge in God's king is offered even to the rebellious nations who are plotting his downfall. So, now, fast forward a thousand years. In its course, in its place in biblical history, we've got to look at a thousand years after this psalm was written. <clears throat> there hasn't been a Davidic king on the throne in Jerusalem for centuries. The nations had overrun Zion, they'd taken the hill. They hadn't just plotted, they'd succeeded in overthrowing the the king of Israel. They'd carried God's special nation off into captivity. And now the juggernaut of the Roman Empire occupied the land of Israel, the land of Judah. The nations had raged, and the kings of the earth had won the day against God's anointed, against the Davidic king. And when uh, when an Israelite man who was of the house and line of David, maybe thought to be lost for centuries. He, attested, uh, he was attested to be the anointed one. He's attested to be the Messiah, the Christ. He came preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The nations and their rulers looked to tamp down that threat right quick. But this time... It wasn't just the nations raging. Israel. Israel was counted among them. They were included in the raging nations right alongside the Gentiles, the Romans, because they had plotted together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's how the disciples pray through Psalm 2 after the fact. What Joe Hamilton read um, this morning in our uh, New Testament reading from Acts chapter 4, 
after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel, and then they were released, and they gathered together with the other disciples, and they were praying, and they prayed, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, your Christ, your Messiah, both Herod, king of the Jews, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all the peoples, all the nations, raged and plotted. And they recognized, the the disciples did as they prayed through Psalm 2, they recognized the sovereignty of this God. That's how they begin their prayer, sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth, who sits in the heavens and laughs at the futility of those who plotted. They recognized this because even all the feeble attempts at rebellion and overthrow of the king ultimately served God's purpose. They ultimately served his sovereign purpose because, as they prayed, these nations and these rulers were raging and plotting to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was totally vain for them to rise up against Jesus. It just fell right into God's plan. It was exactly what God had wanted to do in his sovereignty. God was going to do what he was going to do. No one can stop it, even though they killed Jesus. Their efforts against God, their attempts to stop him, their attempts to rid themselves of him, their trying to throw off the shackles of God's authority played right into his plan. So, ha, we can laugh. Your sin can't stop God. And that means your sin can't stop God from loving you. That's what that means. The very idea is laughable. That you would be able to get, to get God to stop loving you because of your sin, that is laughable. The worst sin and rebellion the nations could muster. All the nations, all the kings of the earth rising up against the Lord and against his anointed, against the Christ. The worst thing we could do was the crucifixion. And that's precisely when the cords of God's kindness and the bands of his love cinched down tight. Forever sealing Christ's authority, complete and total authority over heaven and earth, because that is when the king laid down his life for all the peoples in order to bless them, not to be a threat to them, not to condemn them, not to destroy them, but to be a blessing to them, the king who lays down his life. That was the very moment when God installed his king on the hill, when he was lifted up from the earth to draw all nations to himself, when he was crucified as a result of plotting against him that was ultimately futile because it was the eternal plan of his father, the eternal plan of the sovereign God. At that moment, God spoke the word of his wrath. When when Jesus was crucified, God spoke in his wrath and terrified the world in its fury because that word and that wrath and that fury at our rebellion... They fell on his son. They fell on his shoulders, the shoulders of the king instead of us as he died in our place. And that kind of wrath and that kind of love is terrifying. But that wasn't the end of the story of God's king. It's not the end of Psalm 2. It's not the end of the story of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas were preaching their way out into the nations, going out into the world with the gospel of the new king preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in Christ. And in Acts chapter 13, they talk about Psalm 2 again. 
He says, we bring you the good news. This is all good news. Don't take it as anything but. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Not just having him crucified. By raising him, as also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today, the day of your resurrection, I have begotten you. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Not destruction. Forgiveness of sins. All the old promises of God to bless the nations through Israel are fulfilled in the resurrection of the Christ King. When he was raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven, a human being became the anointed king. A human being. King over all nations. Jesus had been, before, before the incarnation, before his death and resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, Jesus had been always God's divine son since all eternity. But when he became a human and he died, he, gave, he laid down his life in his authority, and he rose again from the dead, then finally, finally this psalm was fulfilled because the Davidic king began to reign forever and ever a human being with all authority in heaven and earth. That's what Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David, the Davidic king, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection. He was the son of God in his divinity, but when he was raised from the dead to that place of ultimate power, Then he was declared to be the son of God in his humanity. It's because he lives forever now. This king, we couldn't get rid of him, and now we never will be able to. He lives forever. He reigns forever. And the promises of God to establish his kingdom forever, they're fulfilled. And this is the good news for the whole world. The ends of the earth have been given to Jesus for his possession. He asked, and his father gave which means a new creation. It means people from every nation made new. That is a violent process. Again, Jesus said, his kingdom. It's a violent process being broken up like hard clay and reshaped and remolded, having your sins exposed and your old self killed, having a heart of stone torn out and replaced with a heart of flesh that's sensitive to God. But that's a process that your king takes you through not to destroy you, but to make you new and to make you his own special possession forever. This king's rule might seem harsh to you at first, but you're being given the opportunity to drop your resistance now precisely because he's patient and he's merciful and he's gracious. You're invited to have the only reasonable, wise response to the reality of Christ's kingship, God has set him up as king, not just on a modest hill in Judea that can be overrun by the Babylonians, but in heaven and the highest heaven with unassailable authority. So be wise. Jesus Christ is Lord and King. You can't prevent it. You can't protest it. You can't overthrow his rule. Disbelieving it won't help your best schemes won't help. Be wise. 
because this king says to you, right now, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what the king says to you. So serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son in your devotion to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. There is no refuge from him, from the reality of his kingship. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So if your refuge is in Christ, if you trust in him and you submit your life to him and you look to him, As to your king, then you'll be able to use this psalm like the disciples did. And this is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. They used it in prayer to call upon the sovereign Lord who had accomplished the gospel once and for all. He'd set up his king in spite of the whole world raging against him. The disciples recognized that the nations, they're raging against God. They're raging against us too. They've locked up Peter and John because we were proclaiming the gospel. And so they asked for continued boldness based on this psalm. That's how they prayed through this psalm. They asked for continued boldness to serve their king by proclaiming the good news of royal pardon to his enemies. And they realized that in reality, the, the nations weren't just raging against them. They're raging against God. They're raging against his Christ, his anointed king. And they asked in the name of the king for the confidence that all the, nation, the, the raging nations in the world couldn't stop the gospel going forth, that even the persecution that we might endure as we proclaim the gospel in Christ's name would simply further the gospel. All it does is, is serve to further the gospel according to God's sovereign plan. They can't stop God They can't stop us. In fact, the disciples had heard Jesus himself extend the promises of Psalm 2 to them. God says to his king, ask of me and I'll give you the nations. And so Jesus said, you ask and it'll be given. And when they did, uh, the disciples did that in in Acts chapter 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to herald the king and his kingdom with boldness so that the gospel would spread to all nations. And this is what we have to look forward to at the end. This is the reality in Revelation chapter 2, John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus and, uh, and what he has to say to the churches. Jesus, again, he quotes Psalm 2. He says, hold fast what you have, persevere, hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So if you trust in Christ and if you serve the Lord with fear and trembling and, uh, and, and rejoice with trembling, you will share in Christ's own authority. You'll share in Christ's own heritage of all the nations. You'll possess the ends of the earth together with him. You'll be in on the new creation. You'll be kings and queens and rulers of the world under his supreme reign forever. 
How's that for blessed are those who take refuge in him? Amen. Let's pray. Father, your blessings are many in Christ. We're thankful for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all your promises, your promises to bless the world through Israel and her king. We're thankful for the king that we have in Christ. We pray that you would help us to follow in his ways. He's the king of love who's laid down his life. And, uh, and so we think that following him will mean the laying down of our lives in many ways, in all ways that you call us to. We pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to do it, knowing your sovereignty, knowing your blessing, knowing that uh, in Christ nothing can be taken away from us. We have all things in him, that we'll be even kings and rulers of the earth together with him if we persevere with him. So we pray that you would keep us in your love, that you would do that work by your spirit that only you can do and help us to persevere in your love, in your grace, in your ways, and in your authority. We pray that you would grant us boldness and confidence to continue to serve you through the proclamation of the gospel in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.